welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Hope you've checked out Counterpunch Plus, had a chance to get a subscription. Supporting Counterpunch is so important as we head into yet another tumultuous political period in the United States. Uh, Counterpunch has been around for more than 25 years, providing independent analysis from the left, all kinds of perspectives, sometimes agreeing, sometimes disagreeing, always interesting, always enlightening. Counterpunch depends entirely on its readers for support. Go to the website, go to Counterpunch Plus, get a subscription there. That's how you can support Counterpunch in general. You can also buy some of the merchandise. Counterpunch Radio t-shirts also help this podcast keep going. Uh, And if you want much more content from me, go to my Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Eric Dreitzer. There you have a lot more content, including videos, commentaries, and a whole lot more. So uh, if you're so inclined to support more more work from me, then please do uh, check that out. Okay. Uh, I want to uh, turn to my conversation today. Obviously, everybody's talking election. We are recording here on Thursday night. That is November 5th. We're now 48 hours past election day, and we still don't really have, you know, we don't really have our final answers yet. So I have with me two returning guests, friends of the show, dare I say, iconoclasts, the two of them. Um, Tony DiMaggio and Paul Street are with me today. Uh, Tony, as a reminder, is a political scientist at Lehigh University. He is the author of the brand new book coming out next year, uh, Unequal America, and this year's book, Rebellion in America, all part of his uh, America series as he attempts to outdo Gore Vidal. Uh, Paul Street is also with me. PaulStreet.org is the website. He's written a lot of things. Some of of them about Obama, some of them about other things. Uh, he is an activist, an author, also an iconoclast, uh, a swell guy, and he's here to talk about the election with us. So, Tony, Paul, welcome. Hey, there, me. Don't speak at the exact same time the whole time, gentlemen. <laughs> All right. Uh, very good. Very good. So, um, well, what can we say? It's not official. It's not a done deal yet. Uh, As we're recording, they're still counting votes in Pennsylvania, in Nevada, in Georgia, uh, possibly one other state. I'm not positive about that. Um, And so it looks like Joe Biden is the president-elect, although that's not 100% for certain. Trump just gave his typically unhinged sort of speech about how he's not conceding and so forth. That just happened earlier today. Uh, So let me turn to uh, Tony first. Um, Tony, you're in Pennsylvania. You want to talk a little bit about what's gone on in Pennsylvania, what you've seen, demonstrations, etc.? Well, it's interesting. Uh, it's been pretty muted. Um, you know, I think a lot of people in the last couple of days have really just been following the election more than anything else. I think, you know, I was at a rally today. It was only about 100 people, maybe. Uh, it was pretty nonpartisan. You know, it was really just the, simply this idea that, um, the, the votes need to be counted, right? Because at this point, like, that's the issue that Donald Trump is raising. Now, it's not that the people there were, you know, moderates or something. They were all pretty engaged progressives, lefties. Uh, There's a fair amount of um, lamenting of Donald Trump as a fascist there. I remember that was quite a bit in terms of the chanting. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's a small number of people right now, but that's because, you know, people are waiting for the the counts to come in and, you know, they're sort of, it's sort of a nail biter in Pennsylvania. So I think people are glued to their TVs or online, you know, news websites or whatnot. And I think that, you know, there, there may be a potential for a lot more people on the streets, depending on sort of what Donald Trump's uh, final response is. And, you know, if he doesn't want to leave, which I suspect uh, he's going to refuse to accept the results, then maybe we'll see a lot more people protesting. Paul, uh, I'm going to ask you the same question, um, but obviously not specific to Pennsylvania. Uh, You also, uh, you know very well the Midwest, you know Illinois, Chicago, you know Iowa. Talk to me a little bit about what you saw leading up to the election, uh, the day of the election. Uh, What was the mood like? What was the tenor of the people in your communities that that, that you were in? Uh, Give us a flavor of that. Well, you know, I'm, um, I've been in Chicago almost completely uh, for much of the summer, and then I came out to Iowa. I'm registered to vote out here. I don't usually vote for Democrats, but the existence of a fascist in the White House convinced me that maybe I ought to come out to a contested state and cast a vote here in Iowa, and it's actually not a contested state. Iowa's gone red 
in presidential elections. It's there's not a lot of drama out here. There really there really isn't much. We do have an Iowa Democracy Election Defenders group. We've got some good progressives, uh, but they're not they're not fighting on Iowa. There's nothing to fight on. Uh, 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 Trump pulled away with about two weeks to go. The Des Moines Register poll is really good, and uh, I don't know why it's a particularly good state poll. I guess Iowa's not a very big state. It's not too complex. So there's no there's no question about it here, which is you know kind of a damn shame because it's six electoral votes that would put Biden at 270 right now. He's stuck in most of the things that I've seen at 264 now in Chicago, which is a safe blue state. Again, not much drama about the electoral college there. But however, Chicago is one of the three great cities in the country. Maybe I should say, uh, well, yeah, I'll say that it's one of the three great cities in the country. It's a city with national attention. It's a city that. Donald Trump has been savaging over the many years and, and saying nasty things about, and there is a left there. Uh, and there's a, um, my goodness, I'm going to be in there and probably speaking uh, in Chicago on Saturday in uh, Daily Plaza or the uh, Federal Plaza, I'm not sure which. And there was a thousand people on the streets last night trying to make a statement, and the statement is count every vote. And uh, there are there are progressive coalitions uh, with with outfits like Indivisible on the right, and you know, move on, and sort of in the center, and then refuse fascism, and various uh, Black Lives Matter activists and uh, uh, union members in Chicago. The Chicago Teachers Union is out. CPAC is out. Those are the people that are leading the fight for community control of the police in Chicago. There's just a lot of people out, and I expect there'll be more people out on Saturday. Uh, this election is pretty much what me and a lot of people I associate with and a lot of activists at places like Refuse Fascism, it's pretty much what we expected. I mean, I, I looked at uh, 538 and, you know, the, the day or two before the election and they had uh, Biden 90%. And I was like, what the hell does that actually mean? Uh, and I looked at state polls in the contested states and they were much closer than that. And we kind of have what we thought we'd have. Obviously, a, a popular vote victory for the Democrat, as usual. Uh, but even it looks like probably a narrow electoral college victory for the, for Biden, uh, who people have very few illusions about. They voted their fears, not their hopes. People that they that they have no no illusions that most people don't that, that Joe Biden is some sort of progressive savior, anything like that. And but it's too close for for Trump not to be uh, doing what he said he would do and what we all knew he would do. At least those who have been paying attention. He's He's, he promised this in advance. Uh, there has been a sort of ongoing attempted rolling coup d'etat, and it's close enough that I expect him to just make this freaking miserable and drag it out as long as he can. And, and I'm worried. I, I don't, I, I'm not ready to assume a lame duck presidency. I, I don't know that they can't uh, do some really nasty stuff and that this, this might not end up with the, in the Supreme Court. I mean, it's not for nothing that Amy Coney Barrett was jammed through there in record speed, uh, um, you know, and I'm, I'm talking too long here, but so, and I'll wrap it up, but, but, but Trump has said all along, the only way I can lose is if the election is rigged. That's pretty much a call to arms, you know, and it's an announcement that you're going to challenge it. And uh, he said today, someone, Trump administration officials were quoted today anonymously that we're hoping on Amy Coney Barrett to come through for us. So, you know, that doesn't, uh, bode well. I guess if I had to put money on it at the end of the day, I think Biden's going to get in. But I, I, I'm not. I'm not just going to just uh, rely on the Democrats. I'm not sure they even know how to fight for themselves, and I'm not going to rely just on the courts. I do think activism in the streets may well be part of the equation. Well, and to that point, Paul, uh, we just heard earlier today, actually, in news report, and I, I don't, I, I didn't research it to triple confirm it, but I believe this was reported at least that uh, Attorney General Bill Barr has authorized armed federal agents in, for uh, observing the counting of ballots. Uh, if that is true, then it only gives more fuel to the, uh, you know, to, to to the fire there that you're kind of oh, pointing sure. to, Paul. Right. Tony, I wanted to I wanted to just ask you to jump in to kind of what Paul was saying there and whether or not you think that Trump, uh, whether or not he's got the balls to do it. Let's leave that aside. Do you think Trump has the structural uh, capacity to pull off something like a soft coup? Uh, you know, initially he was talking about using the courts to do that. And I was 
particularly concerned about that. Well, I sort of went back and forth because you never know with Donald Trump. Initially, I wasn't as concerned about it like well before the election because it was, you know, he's so transparently clumsy and like sort of the way in which he talks about electoral politics and politics in general and talking about how, you know, so especially if you look at the the pre-election polls, which were horribly wrong, but they were saying that, you know, Joe Biden was going to win by eight and a half points. And, and so, you know, you're talking about like such a, if that was true, such a massive amount of votes that how could you possibly get the Supreme Court to just throw out millions and millions and millions of votes? Um, and then it sort of, I was a little bit more scared because, you know, when, when Kavanaugh came out with that statement uh, related to the Wisconsin ruling, I believe it was, where he said, you know, that, oh, well, we don't want the election to flip and the results have to come in as soon as possible. And we don't want to wait very long. It sort of made it seem like, uh, this was going to be blatantly sort of a judicial fiat coup where they were going to hand the election to Donald Trump. Uh, so then I got really, really concerned about it. Um, and you could say, you know, that it should be even, you know, just just as concerned with, with how close a lot of these races are. But I think that one thing for me that's changed really over the last uh, day or so is that if you look at like the number of, of states, Look at the number of states where it's close and the number of states where you'd have to have an intervention by the Supreme Court, because it's going to be case by case, state by state. Like, so what are they going to do? This is not the same as 2000, because in 2000, you had one state, right? One state where they stopped a recount. In this case, Donald Trump's talking about lawsuits related to stopping a first count. He's talking, which wouldn't even make any sense, because if he's behind in all these states, then it's over, right? Then he loses. But then, okay, so what would you have to do if you're Donald Trump and you're thinking, how do I win this? Well, then he wants to go back, obviously. He's going to say, we need to look at all the, the previous ballots that are cast. And he's going to want to go through those with a fine-tooth comb and throw out enough of those so that he can win those states. And at a certain point, you just get to the level of complete absurdity here, where even the Supreme Court, a blatantly conservative, reactionary 6-3 to three Supreme Court, isn't going to be able to do this for him. You're talking about Arizona, Nevada, Pennsylvania. Georgia, Michigan, Wisconsin. So they're going to intervene in case after case, state after state, and throw out, not only stop votes, but throw out tens of thousands of votes. Uh, I think this is a bridge too far even for Donald Trump. I think that, you know, these judges, they have some sort of facade of professionalism that if they were to do this, they would be so widely denounced uh, that they wouldn't have any more credibility. And if people are denying this, then you should go to these very moderate sort of mainstream neoliberal venues like CNN, where they're calling Donald Trump right now just for the rhetoric. They're calling him an authoritarian. They're talking about how he's pathetic, a threat to democracy. Uh, Jake Tapper is using these words right now. The, Donald Trump has made these people sound like leftist, hardcore, revolutionary Marxist critics of government. Uh, and so that's a hard thing to do. And that's just through his rhetoric. So let alone like actually stealing state after state. So I think that, you know, this is really just a bridge too far. I'm less concerned right now about the Supreme Court handing it to him, although it could, anything's possible. I don't think that's going to happen. I think what's more likely is one of two things or one of three things. Number one, he may go next to the state legislators and ask them to hand him entire ballots. And if uh, that's certainly possible, they might do that. I hope not. Um, that's possible. Another possibility is that he just goes to his sort of um, his base, right? And about 20% of his base is straight up authoritarian, fascistic, uh, maybe it's more than that. But they're, when I say 20%, I mean, you know, they say openly, we should use political violence to get what we want. Um, violence for political, religious, and social purposes. This is coming out of the Pew Research Center. You know, 20% of Trump's supporters say, that's, that's fine, that's good, as long as it gets us what we want. So he may just call them to the streets and cause a lot of havoc. And I think that's very possible at this point. And I think it's also, um, you know, it's pretty scary to think about that. And, and I think on, an, on the final level, you know, if there's a third thing that he does, he's just going to refuse to leave the White House. So, you know, then what do you do? Like people could say, oh, his term is up and he didn't win and he's not president anymore. OK, it's all well and good. But what? how do you physically get him out of there? He refuses to leave. So there's all types of questions here that are very concerning. Uh, so I don't think that, you know, any of these things are things to scoff about. I think there are serious concerns. And it is certainly possible that he could try something in terms of staying in office in some kind of coup. Um, I think that you'll probably need protest, mass protest, maybe to get him out of there at this point. Let me, can I say a thing or two more? Yeah. Um, yeah, go, I, ahead. go ahead, Paul. Yeah, I agree with all of what <clears throat> Tony just said. 
Uh, on that last point, uh, Tony, um, you know, the presidency is not actually a residence. You know, it's not 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. It's an institutional role. You know, I mean, if he's done and and the votes have been certified and accepted by Congress, and, and you know, he's the he's through. He can he can he can try and stink up the joint. And yeah, at some point, Secret Service will have to uh, have to, uh, you know, uh, take up a helicopter there and take his uh, take his ass out of there. So, um yeah, that's 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 pretty much all I wanted to add on that. I wanted to I wanted to ask you, Paul. Um, it's kind of building off of uh, some of what Tony was laying out there, and I guess a little bit of what you were alluding to. Can you help us to picture in our minds what you envision uh, as the scenario for his lame duck period, assuming that that's what we're about to enter into? Because wow. the presidency yeah. the presidency has tremendous power, but a lot of that power is constrained during the normal presidential term. And once those restraints are gone, as they are in the lame duck president in the lame duck period, uh, I mean, the gloves come off, right? Boy, that's yeah, that's a scary thought just of uh, what kind of uh, havoc this complete maniac uh, 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 um, could try to, to uh, it's kind of havoc this guy could try to, to wreak in that considerable period of time. I mean, I've always sort of said, I want Trump Pence out now, and I actually mean it. Uh, I was hoping there would be a possibility of a enough of a changeover in the Senate so he could be impeached and removed. That would be after January 3rd. I mean, I just don't want this son of a bitch in there for one more day. I want to say a little bit something more about a scenario in which Trump, uh, uh, might in fact uh, have to go, and and that 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 yeah he really may be done, and and that is this. It, it's 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 entirely possible, and this is on the optimistic side of this guy having to go. It's entirely possible that that the right wing um, might be ready to cut and run from this guy. That he's just too costly to them. They've gotten so much of what they wanted from him. How much more can they get? They've got a, a loaded up right-wing court system all the way up to the Supreme Court. They've got a, they, this, this Christian fascist handmade uh, Coney Barrett nomination is just sort of the icing on the cake. They've got a six to three right-wing court. They've apparently going to prevail in, though I guess that's not 100%, in the Senate. I think that they, and also capital, uh, uh, big money, uh, can live very nicely and quite happily with a center, center-right Joe Biden presidency checked against any pressure from the progressive left and from the populace by a uh, right-wing court system, a right-wing Supreme Court, and a a right-wing Senate. I think that works for them. And in fact, in the last couple of days, they say the stock market's been doing very well and been going up because investors are very happy about the prospect of a uh, calming influence of a right-wing Democrat uh, surrounded by uh, further right-wing Republicans, you know, the lame duck period, I, I, God, I, God only knows that's somewhat unprecedented. We've never had a, a humiliated, complete, total lunatic, uh, uh, committed kind of fascist sitting in this bitterly in this, uh, you know, this weird position. I, I, I don't, I can't imagine what, uh, if, if he's really done, how he's going to respond to that. He just might lose his shit completely. I imagine he'll, uh, try and blow up as much of the administrative state as he can. And, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, issue as many insane, destructive and horrific executive orders as he possibly can. And I imagine do everything they can to sabotage uh, um, the, uh, the incoming next presidencies. This guy's on, on, on pace to, to for half a million dead by, from COVID-19 by, by February. Uh, um, he seems to like killing people. Uh, I imagine maybe his pace of of of, of pandemo homicide may may go up dramatically. I'd like to see him out of there uh, before January twentieth, personally. Right, and the question with regard to lame duck here is: a Biden presidency seems to be a lame duck presidency from day one. What do you think, Tony? <laughs> I think so. Um, especially if he doesn't have control of the Senate, and even if they had control of the Senate, unless you change. The filibuster rules, you're not going to be able to do anything um, based on the current rules unless you have 60 plus to get anything done. So, yeah, I think that's an issue. I think um, if nothing else, there are two 
possible positive things that would come out of this, even if he is a lame duck going in. Number one, uh, there needs to be some kind of action on the climate, whether it's reinstituting the Obama executive orders related to fuel efficiency standards for cars and for power plants, coal burning, and all that stuff. There needs to be something that starts happening at some point soon. We can't wait four years or eight years to see some kind of action because you're talking about an even worse calamity than what we're already facing. So that in and of itself might uh, be a big difference, I think, and will be a big difference. And I think the other big benefit is that um, you don't have, whatever you think about Joe Biden, I don't really like Joe Biden particularly. I don't really particularly like the Democratic Party. I don't identify as a Democrat in any way. But whatever you think about that party, whatever you think about these leaders like Joe Biden, he's not an insane person. Um, so there's a symbolic value that comes along with not having a sort of uh, extreme narcissistic, fascistic personality who has a complete commitment in every way to destroying any notion of truth or fact. There's a, a huge symbolic value to the nation's sanity, to getting someone like that out, whether it's you know the fueling of QAnon conspiracies or COVID misinformation in the middle of the worst pandemic in a century, the fundamental uh, effort to create distrust of all scientists and doctors and journalists. You know, this is the sort of stuff of pre-fascistic, proto-fascistic development where, you know, the idea of, of the, the cult of personality, where people become obsessed with the leader, where 62% of Donald Trump's supporters say there's nothing he can do that would ever make them question their support for him to the point where they'll kill themselves. They'll go to rallies now where 700 of them have died now. The studies that have been done have traced back that they got COVID and they died. You know, this is like Jonestown level of like collective suicide here. You know, this level of insanity in the nation has been stoked and fueled by this guy for the last four years. And you can say if he's on Twitter that he can still do it. That's true. But he no longer has the megaphone of the corporate media and the ratings. It's not that they won't cover him, but they're not going to cover him to the extent that they're covering him now. So I think that we're at that point now as a nation where it's become a, such an insane crisis level of instability that really, you know, I would you could have like a dog in the White House, you know, Cocker Spaniel, that would be preferable to this president. And it would I, be actually would, improvement. I actually would argue that would be preferable to all presidents and all members of both parties. Okay. A, a bucket of sand, I would also accept. Paul, I wanna I wanna get I wanna get your take on well what Tony just said and um, I mean specifically here is Biden bringing stability back right and and what does stability actually look like or I guess maybe another way of saying that is stability for whom? Yeah. Uh, I was I was going to add also maybe a tomato plant would be uh, I'd, I'd be ready to vote for one of those instead of Trump. I mean, Tony did a really nice rundown of the complete, utter, total madness and insanity of Trump. And I was glad to hear Tony use the F word because this is fascistic. This has been a fascistic presidency. And w when I've encountered resistance in the streets over the last few months um, uh, about the notion that, that Trump might be trying to hatch a, or was in fact <laughs> in hatching a rolling coup, you know, um, which is just sort of extraordinary and sort of somewhat unprecedented in American history, trying to actually uh, undo an election. And people would say, that just couldn't happen. That couldn't happen here. And I would just list off all the things that Trump has done that no one thought were at all possible. I mean, we don't have time to cover all of them, but you know, kids in cages, ripping babies from their mothers, breastfeeding babies being ripped from their mother's arms at the border, you know, the murder of Soleimani, the tearing up of every environmental regulation he can get his hands on, which actually might be his worst crime that no one even talks about at all because everything, they're distracted by everything else. The insanity of this regime is hard to even keep up with. It'll drive you to despair to even try and track it. So it, it's very important and, and very critical. And all these Trump and lefties that drive us crazy, uh, um, you know, uh, um, just don't, you know, just don't seem to understand the madness of all that. And then we get and, and when we say this guy's got to go because he's fascist or pre-fascist or he's a malignant sociopath or malignant narcissist or uh, a, a virulent racist uh, a pandemic spreading anti-science lunatic, uh, uh, they then uh, folks think they need to give us a lecture 
about how bad the Democrats are, as if all as if, as, as if all of us in this discussion here don't have long spoken and written records on precisely how awful the Democratic Party is. We know that very well, but it's not, they're not just the same exact parties and Biden's not the same exact uh, uh, politician and political figure as Trump. I'm sorry, they're not the exact same. They are all the Democrats and Republicans. Biden and Trump are all caught up in a sick, uh, uh, um, codependent, corporate capitalist imperialist relationship. Absolutely. My new book, Hollow Resistance, is all about that sick codependent relationship between accommodationist, appeasement-oriented, inauthentic opposition Democrats and right-wing white nationalist neo-fascist Republicans. We know that the stability that uh, might come with Biden is, I think, a stability uh, for capital primarily. I think they're looking for a calming they're a calming of the markets and um, and perhaps some sense that COVID will be brought under control. That's something as I was listening to Tony talk that I was thinking that you want to talk about a difference where there is a difference, yet they're both capitalist, horrible, imperialist parties. I don't think with Obama in or Biden in the White House, I don't think we'd be looking at 500,000 deaths from COVID uh, um, by February, you know? So they're looking for some sense of calming and some sense of, uh, of, of uh, stability. But I fear that the Biden regime, if it's in fact going to happen, and I suspect it will, uh, um, is going to be austerity, austerity oriented. And we have some indications that their transition team will be full of sort of neoliberal Goldman Sachs, uh, a Citigroup, a JP Morgan Trust, a Council on Foreign Relations types of people who will come in saying the cupboard is bare and we really can't do anything. So they'll do the exact opposite of what, what is required to avoid a major depression or recession and to, you know, to expand the economy and put people back to work, not to mention that they won't do any of the social democratic things that we know they need to do for human purposes. And then, you know, all hell will break loose in the 22 midterms and maybe the right wing will win in 24. Paul, I want to ask you, I want to follow up on, on some of those comments and specifically, um, asking about Biden and Trump and the notion of stability as it relates to capital, because you said it and you're correct. Of course, I agree a thousand percent that it is that Biden represents stability for capital. But this then gets back to the other question you and I have discussed uh, many times before on this show, Paul, that what sectors of capital did Trump represent and what sectors of capital really resented Trump and, and really hated the kind of instability that he brought? Ultimately, the 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 reason that Trump existed in the first place as president is because of an intra ruling class fight uh, uh, segments of capital in revolt against other segments of capital. And so I wanted to just talk a little bit just before we head to the break here about capital and what capital was really banking on Biden. I mean, it's it's Wall Street, it's international finance capital, it's the it's it's tech companies, the big tech companies. It is capital that is globalized, right? As opposed to like energy, you know, the the these petrochemical companies and so forth. Paul, speak a little bit about capital. Get your marks. Well, I think that, you know, I think that all of capital uh, at the end. I mean, I Hillary Clinton uh, um, was very much the candidate of of finance capital and the leading corporations. And I don't think they particularly wanted uh, Trump in there. Trump uh, uh, did have a lot of key backing from a sort of a, sort of wild deconstructivist uh, 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 parts of finance capital, you know, and and uh, and, the, and I think the fossil fuel sector has been heavily invested in, in a really big part of the Trump coalition. And that's right, more national nationalistic oriented and less less. Globalist. I think all of capital, uh, uh, including this, the sorts of folks who line up with um, um, the, the Obamas and the Clintons, uh, were perfectly happy to enjoy uh, a lot of deregulation uh, and 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 a big fat huge tax cut um, under Trump. Right. And uh, but but yeah, I think they're ready. I think I think they got everything that everything good that they think they could get from him. They've they've, they've had enough. You know. He gives capitalism, he gives the American brand, he gives the system uh, a bad name. 
You know, it's not supposed to be this openly, horribly classist and racist and sexist. That's just not the way to sell this system at home and abroad. And I think most of them uh, um, have, have had enough. Let's take a quick break. Um, on the other side of the break, I want to talk a little bit more about some of the issues we've already touched on COVID, the impact that COVID had on Trump and on Trump's reelection chances, uh, the undermining of the election, conspiracy theories, and a whole lot more. Lots more to discuss with Tony DiMaggio and Paul Street, both regular contributors to Counterpunch. Go over to Counterpunch, get yourself a subscription, listen to the music. We'll be right back. Punch Radio chatting with Tony DiMaggio and Paul Street. PaulStreet.org is the website. Tony, uh, his new book, Unequal America, is coming in just a few months. You can get that on pre-order. And uh, the 2020 book, Rebellion in America, get yourself a copy of both of those excellent uh, holiday gifts for people who need to learn about the broad sweeping strokes of this sick society we have here in the United States. So, um, Tony, I want to turn to you and ask you about some of the uh, data, some of the research that you have looked at with regard to COVID. I know that it's obviously early. It's, I guess we could say, very preliminary conclusions that we might draw. But what's your take on the overall impact that COVID had on Trump's reelection campaign? Well, it's a good question. You know, some of this uh, data is kind of old, actually, because there was a lot of really good polling done on this in April, how COVID was impacting people's thoughts about everything. Um, March and April, really, primary April. And then we've got some stuff that just came out with the exit polling data. Um, and by the way, so the exit polling data, you know, it looks at like they contacted people from the Edison Group, which does this stuff, and then they release it through the New York Times Um They've got some data on not just um, people who were at the polls physically, but people who said that they did mail-in voting. So it's an interesting eclectic mix. Here's what we know. You know, going back to April, obviously most Americans thought um, Donald Trump was doing a pretty uh, poor job with regards to COVID for obvious reasons. And people, especially who came from areas of the country that had been the hardest hit economically, uh, were more likely to view Donald Trump negatively in relation to the COVID sort of induced 
economic depression that, that came about. So, you know, we knew as early as April where this was going. If you sort of took a look closely at some of these polls that were being done that were linking the issues of COVID, the economy, and people's thoughts of Trump. And what we've really seen with the exit polling now is sort of the same thing. You know, um, but there's some interesting wrinkles here. Um, one of the interesting wrinkles is that, you know, depending on whether you already had a sympathetic view of Trump or not, let's say you're Republicans versus Democrats, you know, people sort of, sort of saw what they wanted to see with regard to his handling of COVID. So Republicans say, oh, yeah, he's doing a great job, you know, and so on. And Democrats said he's doing a horrible job. So in other words, people filtered their views of COVID through their partisanship. But it's actually more than that. You know, there's actually also evidence to show that independent of partisanship, the economic hardship had a big or at least a significant impact. Fifty-five uh, percent of Americans in the Edison exit poll that just came out said that COVID had some kind of impact on them negatively in terms of economic hardship. And of those people, depending on if they said that it had a moderate effect or a severe effect, they went uh, three to two or two to one, that range, against Trump in, in their voting. So, yeah, I mean, I think that this is probably the difference maker when we look at um, this election. You're talking about a four million person difference in vote right now. You're talking about races that might be very, very close within each individual state. But I think when all is said and done and you look at the electoral ballots, it's not going to be that close. It'll probably be like 290 or more for Biden. So like 240 something for Trump. It's not a blowout by any means, but it's not as close as it, it won't be as close as it could have been. And I think this is the difference maker. I think that this was the straw that broke the camel's back. There were a lot of people who were angry about Donald Trump going into pre-COVID that era. And this sort of did it, you know, 250,000 people now approaching dead, an economy crushed. You know, you've got a, a solid quarter of the population or maybe in terms of voters and, um, you know, probably about 45 percent of the population overall who are just solidly committed to Donald Trump and, you know, the cult of Trump. And they're not going to change. But for the other part of the country, you know, there's a fair amount of people there in the middle who the economy and COVID matter. And and this was it for them, you know, and that, this was it for them with this president. And Tony, I want to ask you one other question before I shift over to Paul, just because uh, I don't know, because I'm because I'm the host and I'm going to do it. Um, the the way that Trump is reacting to the election, um, you know, using these bold faced lies really regarding uh, fraud and all of the rest of that, I'm. This is the way that he is undermining the election, right? As a way of sowing doubt. This is really kind of his strategy in all things. My question, though, is that is this more significant somehow? Is there something that Trump is doing here that goes beyond just Trump? Is he undermining an institution at the fabric of America? Now, I only ask that question because on the surface, it would seem that way. And I think a lot of people would say yes. I actually would say no, but I, I would be very curious to get your take on it, Tony. I guess I would say it goes much deeper than him undermining faith in an election. I mean, there are are concerns that for his supporters that, you know, but, but this has been happening for a long time with them that they've had basically every institution in society has been undermined because of him. And there's a reason for this. When you talk about a fascistic personality, the idea with the cult of personality is to destroy any independent notion of truth, independent of the leader, as I like to call Donald Trump. So you have to turn people against the, the doctors and the scientists, and all the journalists, and the academics. And after a while, there's nobody left. Nobody left except for Donald Trump and his foot soldiers in right-wing media, including Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity, and Mark Levin, and all these other fanatics. And so, you know, they, this has been a project. It's been ongoing for more than a decade, well over a decade, where these foot soldiers behind the scenes quietly have been undermining any notion of truth outside of their narratives. Um, so I think it's just so much worse than undermining an election. You know, this is one of the fundamental pre-components of any sort of authoritarian society or a fascistic society is that you undermine the very notion of truth. So the, this whole idea of like undermining an election and confidence in it, yeah, that's true. But like, that's just one part of a larger dystopian sort of nightmare society. You're talking about 1984 levels of 
authoritarianism um, and propaganda. And so I think that that's the big story here. Well, at the risk of revealing the fact that you have now stolen my next question, Tony, I just throw it over to Paul. Hey, Paul, can I get you to comment on what Tony just talked about, about how uh, it's not just undermining elections, but it's undermining uh, uh, the very notion of truth and objective fact? Oh, well, I mean, you know, my God, it's, 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 you know, it's beyond just misstating facts. It's, it's inverting reality. So Trump, uh, while engaged in a rolling and ongoing attempted coup d'etat, we'll see if he can actually pull it off, uh, is accusing his opponents of carrying out a coup d'etat. <laughs> it's just, uh, um, while terrorizing, while embracing uh, neo-fascist terror against civil rights protesters in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and Portland, and all over the country. He refers to you know, and while, while actually stirring up, stirring up right-wing terrorism, he refers to peaceful, mostly peaceful, uh, civil rights, Black Lives Matter protesters as terrorists. In fact, he has he and I think Barr have actually referred to uh, uh, Black Lives Matter and, and anti-fascists as quote unquote. Fascists. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's opposites world, you know, it's, 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 it's almost beyond Orwell, you know, and, um, and so there's a, just a, 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 a discrediting of, of, of um, elementary basic kind of reality. We're turning the corner on COVID is said repeatedly as the country sets new COVID infection uh, uh, records, you know, it, it just, it, it, it never ends. I think they've tabulated. This guy had like uh, 20 misstatements of fact a day. That sounds low to me. 20, 30, whatever. It's it's just absolutely relentless. And, you know, the right-wing project over many years has included just making politics so disgustingly Orwellian and ugly and idiotic that people can't take it anymore and they just turn away from it. I get that. I get that reaction from a lot of people I know. And just like, you know, and it's just it's just too disgusting. And of course, the more we turn away from it, you can't escape politics at the end of the day. You can't just completely retreat into private life because it will come back and bite you in the ass. Look how COVID uh, of, of, over which Trump has been in complete denial and lying about as he's fanning it, you know, comes back and impacts the negative, the, the private lives of millions of people, often quite uh, tragically. I would say, though, that Trump could never have happened without the institutions, many of the institutions in the society discrediting themselves well in advance of Trump. Trump did not just fly in on a magic carpet from Mars and, and magically undermine our faith in our institutions. We, we you know, uh, 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 generations, okay, um, of, 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 of um, economic and political elites have, have done a pretty good job on that. He couldn't have got in in the first place. If the Democrats, for example, hadn't uh, behaved in such an absolutely miserable, transparently inauthentic fashion, you know, in ways that undermined our faith uh, in the relevance of um, voting um, in 2016. I mean, the, 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 it's, it's, he's, he's, he's a cause, but he's also an effect of an erosion in institutions. Yeah. Or in 2008, I mean, in 2012, I mean, come on, you, you give people, you give people hope and change and then you deliver nothing. And then you, and then you act surprised when they turn around and go to the guy who says, I'm going to come in and smash the joint. Well, or before that, when they, when the Occupy camps light up the country, like a cell phone map from coast to coast and, and, and people start chanting against the 1%. And then you as a democratic president work with democratic mayors uh, from coast to coast to physically uh, infiltrate and dismantle that, that rebellion. Paul, I want to ask you another question about something that I've heard on TV and radio ad nauseum for the last two days. And it's a phrase that makes just, oh, it just irks me so much. I want to ask you this question, Paul. So I better not is, like it. Okay. All right. Is America a divided nation? <laughs> Well, uh, it's divided on numerous levels, okay? I could point to you uh, to 12 to 15 neighborhoods in Chicago, all of which are 95% more black and in which a quarter to half of the kids are growing up at less than the poverty level. And then 
uh, and the, 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 all, this, all the life statistics are very different in the uh, predominantly white parts of town, and that's true in every metropolitan area of America. So there's certainly that division. Uh, um, you know, uh, the, the, before Trump even came in, uh, the top tenth of the upper one percent, not just the one percent, the top tenth of the upper one percent had as much wealth as the bottom 90 U.S. percent, the bottom 90 percent of the U.S. That's kind of a little bit of a division there. That sounds like a class division. Um, yeah, I think we're I, I think we've got some divisions uh, that matter and we're we're just damn near down the middle uh, in partisan terms. Uh, the partisan divisions are extraordinary. Now, Obama has uh, said that he hopes Joe Biden can get in there, you know, as a nice centrist, a nice kind of Eisenhower Democrat and calm things down so that we don't have to argue with our right-wing relatives during Thanksgiving dinner. What does that say about Obama's politics, right? Just calm down. And, you know, Biden right now is telling everyone to stay calm. We no reason to go out in the streets, no reason to protest. You know, the, 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 the Trump and Volk are out, you know, threatening all kinds of havoc at voting centers. So just calm down and, and get them. Can't we all just get along, to quote Rodney King? And let's just stop arguing and uh, let the technocrats and the people from the Council on Foreign Relations and Goldman Sachs and Citigroup and J.P. Morgan Trust and the uh, Center for American Progress in Brookings, they'll take care of things for us. Uh, let's just stop being so damn divided and let the experts do their job and run this country the way it, the way it needs to be run. Yeah, something like that. Uh, you know, Tony... I, I'm going to give the same, I want to pose the same question to you, but I'm going to add a little bit to it. Yes, obviously we're a divided nation for all, in all of the ways that Paul pointed out uh, correctly, divided on class lines in terms of poverty, in terms of access to healthcare, in terms of any, any number of things that you could point to divided in that way. But I think that when they say it on 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 MSNBC or CNN or ABC or whatever, when they write it in the New York Times that America is a divided nation, to me, what they're really talking about is a cultural question, uh, uh, divided along sort of cultural worldview lines. And my my reaction to that is is mixed because I know that you've done you do a lot of work with polling and with data. Tony. And the fact of the matter is that the polling and the data has shown consistently over decades that Americans generally support mostly progressive policies when it's stripped away of sort of the cultural signifiers and the, the various forms of propaganda. So my question is, is America a divided nation or have Americans been divided up by media and propaganda and disinformation rather than being able to say unite around those things that they're actually united on? Well, uh, you know, it could be a bit of both. I think uh, obviously you've got elites that are stoking divisions. That's sort of Donald Trump's professional MO, right? I mean, that's what he does. He's uh, representing the 45% of the country, uh, even if it's just on a rhetorical, cultural, sort of symbolic level. Uh, that he speaks to. And so, yeah, I think that's a part of it. I wouldn't also disagree with what Paul's talking about. I think racially, you know, racial segregation in America, especially in schooling, has been increasing for many years now, probably the last really 10, 15 years at least. Uh, economic segregation is growing. When you talk about the decline in middle-class neighborhoods, um, I, I think it's actually more complicated than the way that these uh, cable venues and other pundits are talking about it, because it's not like a red-blue divide by itself. There's actually a three-part divide if you're talking about politics. And that's the fact that you've got one-third of the country that is sort of one-third to 40% that's militantly behind this president and won't question him and will follow him all practically off a cliff, or many of them will definitely do that. There's another third that are... Um, in some kind of liberal fashion, center, center left, uh, democratic, okay. And then there's another third who are just completely and utterly checked out of reality. And so, you know, they don't believe that they should pay attention to what's happening in the world around them, in the news. They don't want to talk about politics. They think that it's rude in a pandemic to talk about the fact that Donald Trump has completely failed the nation on this public health crisis. You shouldn't talk about these issues and we should all just get along and avoid politics. And, you know, they're not going to vote either, of course, and they're definitely not going to go out and protest. So, you know, this is why it's so hard in the United States to build 
a progressive or a left movement because you have these three divisions between people on the far right, people who are fairly progressive or liberal minded, and then you have the people who are just totally checked out of political reality. And uh, I think that this is one thing that a lot of left academics miss and a lot of left intellectuals miss. I hear over and over and over, and I used to actually buy into this. Years ago, I used to buy into it when I was told, oh, America is a left nation, because if you look at people's attitudes on all types of polling questions, especially on like um, economics, they say that they prefer more government. They want more spending on education and health care. They like the idea of uh, universal health care, Medicare for all, and so on and so on, student loan forgiveness. None of that means anything if you're not going to act on it. So, you know, people can say something in theory and in principle, but it doesn't mean anything if you're not willing to organize to make it happen. Now, you know, whether that's building a third party or whether that's people taking over the Democratic Party like Sanders were trying to do, you got to do, you got to do something. And that doesn't happen. So, you know, I hear people say this stuff about, especially on the left, a lot of this. It's a progressive nation. It's a left nation. That's a bunch of nonsense. It's not a progressive nation because if you don't do anything, it doesn't matter what opinions you hold in a vacuum. We have a three-way divided nation in this country where you have a very far right-wing element, uh, some kind of totally checked out element, and then some other people who are fairly progressive to liberal. And you can't govern a country that way. There needs to be some kind of block of people who can consistently win elections for whatever party it is and govern. And we don't have that. And that's why the U.S. is flailing. Paul, any thoughts? Yeah, I, I've often, this went somewhere I wasn't expecting, but it's interesting. I, I've often wondered about that polling data because I've been in the past somewhat guilty of um, citing all those sort of uh, Charles Derber and Chomsky likes to cite these this data too about how left and how social democratic everybody is. I always sort of wonder what the, you know, could could we add a question in those polls? Okay, so you, you'd like single payer health insurance. Okay, you'd like a Green New Deal. Okay, you'd like seriously progressive taxation. Okay, you'd like a, uh, you know, a doubling of the minimum wage and the re-legalization of union organizing. You know, just fill in the blank with the progressive agenda, right? I mean, you know, when, when the right says you guys are just against stuff, you're not for anything. I always say, excuse me. I mean, here's the, here's the whole progressive agenda. Everything I just mentioned and more is part of it. There's nothing mysterious about it. And it polls very well. But I was wondering at the end of those of those surveys or with each question, could the pollsters ask, and what and how, 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 how willing are you to prioritize this issue in your life? Is it, is it you know, beyond just a passive response to a pollster over a phone or through an internet survey? Would you be actually willing to do anything like that? Would you be willing to put your body on the line to fight for that? Well, that's an extreme vision. Would you be willing to march for that? Would you be willing to demonstrate for that? Would you be willing to form a civic association, a watchdog group for that? You know, would you really be willing to pick up a gun and kill a capitalist for that? I'm kidding. Uh, but, you know, hey, that should be a polling question. You know, would you be willing to, to engage in, in mobilize and come out of this... Uh, you know, Sheldon Wolin inverted totalitarianism that uh, it, it captures so much of the country where they are led to believe that, that politics is, um, I don't know, watching CNN, MSNBC getting pissed off and then going going in a voting booth for 10, 15 minutes once every 1,460 days. And then you put on your little thing says, I voted and you're a political person. So, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good point that Tony made. Paul, do you think that Trump has created a template or blazed a trail or laid down markers for those who will come after him? And if he has, uh, in what ways has he done that? Well, I worry about that. He tapped into something that I think existed already. Okay. I mean, one thing is, is uh, uh, um, to keep in mind, it's essential that this son of a bitch is driven out of power one way, shape or fashion. I hope we don't have to take to the streets and, and face uh, AR-15 uh, uh, scatter shot from white nationalist Michigan militia lunatics, uh, um, you know. But but he's got to go one way shape, and I hope he can go as peacefully as possible and disappear because we can't move forward or think about anything else until the plug is pulled on this endless reality television show called Donald Trump sitting on a toilet in the White House sending out hate tweets five, five hours a day. That's got to go. But when he goes away, and if he's dragged out kicking and screaming, we still have 70 million plus people who actually fucking 
went to the nauseating extent of casting a vote for a man that Noam Chomsky properly referred to as the most dangerous criminal in human history, Donald Trump. Uh, and, And those people aren't just disappearing all of a sudden. That white nationalism, that authoritarianism, that toxic combination of a desire for a strong authoritarian leader and uh, uh, a desire to smite the liberal professional uh, uh, elite, and I guess business elite, and the liberal and left so-called elite that is absurdly accused of having opened the door to let the supposedly undeserving people of color cut in line ahead of them. Those people don't just disappear. And I worry that a um, in the wake of an austerian neoliberal corporatist and probably imperialist and probably potentially at least disastrous Biden administration that someone can tap that base, that same authoritarian white nationalist, anti-truth, anti-science, racist, sexist, nativist, ecocidal base with more competence, with more education, with the actual ability to read a policy document, right? Someone with a degree from Yale Law or Harvard Law instead of a, uh, you know, a malignant grifter whose eyes glaze over more than two sentences into a white paper from the Council on Foreign Relations who can't even read the U.S. Constitution without falling you know, asleep, can't even read his favorite clause in it. And that's very worrisome, yeah, that, 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 uh, that, that he has showed uh, how to tap the, the, the hatred and resentment of this very u- ugly Trump and Volk, this Americana a heartland base uh, to to someone who can combine his uh, strange sort of charisma with real intelligence and dedication and Hitler-esque, Mussolini-esque commitment to right-wing doctrine and ideology, which I think Trump at the end of the day doesn't have. I think he's an instinctual fascist uh, and an ugly instinctual fascist. I don't think he's capable of doctrine. I don't think he, 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 I don't think he's the mental capacity for it. Other folks do, and people around him in his administration do. And yes, this is a concern going forward, something worse. That's what I've been writing about for a a while now, uh, exactly the scenario you described and exactly the kind of figure that you described emerging at some point. Uh, To me, the only question is whether or not it's an inevitability, and that I think remains to be seen. Uh, Tony, I want to give you uh, a chance to speak to that same issue of whether or not you think that Trump uh, has blazed a trail here, has he created a template that will be picked up by others? And then maybe as a sort of um, you know, adjunct to that question, I want you to just talk a little bit about something you and I have spoken about before, about conspiracy theory, and specifically uh, in looking back at Donald Trump's presidency, how conspiracy theory was weaponized and what the weaponization of conspiracy theory means for our politics. Well, so related to that point about conspiracy and also related to what you were, we were just talking about, um, I think that, you know, I would not say that Donald Trump has blazed a path. I would say he's continued to develop something that was a long time coming. People don't pay attention to these individuals, and they should, even if it's just for sociological purposes. But if you look at Alex Jones and you look at Mark Levin, Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Glenn Beck and O'Reilly before them, before they got booted from Fox, they have been trying to mainstream extremism forever. And whether that be um, smuggling in sort of racist rhetoric and appealing to the white nationalist right or extreme misogyny or Islamophobia or conspiracy theory, uh, people don't listen to Rush Limbaugh. And you don't have to. You know, go read Media Matters where they give you the highlights or the lowlights, as you could call them. And, you know, these this conspiratorial extremist sort of politics has been uh, – that's been they've been laying out the carpet for that for a really long time. So Donald Trump was the next step in the chain. And then there's going to be somebody who comes after. And so this is a larger sort of problem here. I mean, we talk about conspiracy theories, like this is what these people traffic in. Rush Limbaugh is not substantively different at all than Donald Trump in terms of the conspiratorial uh, politics. And, you know, whether you're talking about the voting conspiracies, COVID-related conspiracies, which have also gotten um, amplified by social media, which we've talked about before. You know, that's a whole other thing. Uh, this kind of sort of rhetoric is extremely dangerous. And there's a, a historian, a famous historian named um, Daniel Goldhagen, who he wrote about, you know, the, the Holocaust. And he had this idea called eliminationism, where he talked about the kind of rhetoric 
an ideology that people develop where they frame their political enemies as a threat to the republic that have to be eliminated. And that's a big part of this right wing rhetoric. And, and it falls into the conspiracy stuff where, you know, these are people, they frame the Democratic Party as some sort of Marxist threat to the republic that wants to undermine voting. And so, yeah, I mean, this is... This is something that's been coming for a very long time. It's going to continue going. So, you know, it'll be Trumpism without Trump. Somebody else will come along and and pick up the torch. That's the real risk here moving forward. Paul, I want to give you the last word here. Um, Speaking a little bit about the future and what you expect, because we you literally wrote the books on Obama. Uh, Biden's administration is essentially a continuation of the Obama administration. It would be the, all the main key players. Biden is this demented grandfatherly figure who is in some sort of a mental fog and uh, is propped up like a weekend at Bernie's tribute band or something. And, um, you know, what does this really mean here? I mean, are we right back to the Obama technocratic uh, rule that is going to accomplish nothing for working people and lay the foundation for an even more reactionary fascist? Yeah, you know, I, I wondered, it seems like you broke up in part of that, but I think I have the gist of the question. Yeah, yeah I worry about that. I worry about that a lot. Uh, um, I, I, you know, I worry about the absence of a real consistent and organized uh, left in this country, uh, uh, which, you know, it's kind of like we're screwed no matter what the outcome of these elections are in the absence of that. One reason I've been arguing for a mass popular movement to force Trump, Pence, Miller, Barr, and all those people out is in fact not simply, I mean out, uh, uh, not just through an election, I mean, Puerto Rican style, I mean, Belarusian style, I mean, Lebanon style, uh, you know, and, and one reason I've been arguing for that kind of movement is not simply uh, um, to get rid of this menace, this existential menace, this most dangerous criminal in human history, Donald Trump, though that is important in and of itself. He has to go, but also to set a popular precedent uh, uh, um, and an example of, um, of, uh, of people's power. Um, so that whoever or whatever comes in after that can uh, uh, um, can can make a coherent case for democracy, which we don't have. We just uh, I, I can't. What, what drives me nuts that I hear from the cable news talking heads and from the pundits at the New York Times and all that is this constant, insistent references to Trump as a grave threat. He's a grave threat to our democracy. And sort of which democracy is that? I mean, democracy was the founding fathers ultimate nightmare. I mean, and there's an army, there's an ocean of, of empirical research, even just by mainstream liberal political scientists like Martin Gillens, showing that big money and corporate concentrated wealth and all of that and oligarchy completely trumps, uh, no pun intended, public opinion and has across the whole neoliberal era, has over the last four decades. So in the absence of the kind of movement Uh, beneath and beyond just the election cycle and beneath and beyond just this notion of voting once every 1,460 days, you know, that takes on the the institutions of this country, that takes a critical eye at it and confronts them. And, 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 you know, in, in ways that Dr. Martin Luther King talked about at the end of his life when he said that the real issue to be faced is a direct quote from Dr. King in 1968, the real issue to be faced beyond superficial matters is the radical reconstruction of society itself. Well, I mean, that's pretty dramatic. That's a revolution. But, you know, how about for starters, we start really taking a serious look at things like the utter absurdity of the Electoral College. Try and explain the Electoral College to somebody from another, from a democracy, from an actual democracy, you know, like Holland or Sweden or I, I suppose France. I mean, it's just it's just madness. We we still are stuck with a charter from the horse and buggy era when Louis XVI reigned in France. We do not popularly elect the president of the United States. The judicial review that allows that has allowed Supreme Court to come in and intervene in political elections is utterly preposterous. That's actually not in the Constitution. The representation system in the U.S. Senate is ludicrous. Uh, California has 39 million people, two senators. Uh, is, it, is it Wyoming? They have 576,000 people. Are there, right? And two U.S. senators. 
And, and this tilts the whole political system very far to the right to all of this progressive majority public opinion that we were talking about some time ago. So in the absence of movements that get serious about the institutions that structure our political life and our very narrow limited policy options, you know, I, I, am, a, I'm, I am a bit uh, uh, concerned about the possibility of a decent future. Well, I think we're all concerned about a lot of things, but unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Paul Street, Tony DiMaggio, as always, thank you for coming on Counterpunch Radio, for giving us your brilliant insights, and for continuing to contribute to Counterpunch. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us. You bet, Eric. And listeners, thank you, as always, for your continued support. Go to Counterpunch, get a subscription to Counterpunch Plus, keep that content flowing, and we will chat again real soon. I think I'm going to have another guest on in the the not-too-distant future to do one more election wrap-up, so uh, do look for that, and we'll chat again soon.